I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, as we've been working our way through the book of Acts over the last several months, we come now to chapter 18 and a continuation of the recounting of the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul and his team that was traveling with him. And we'll find in Acts chapter 18 that Paul comes now from the city of Athens to the city of Corinth, and these verses detail some of the happenings there in the city of Corinth and what God did in that place. So if you direct your attention, please, to Acts chapter 18, verse number 1. We'll read down through verse 17 this morning and take that as our text. The scripture says this, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome and came unto them. And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. And he departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace. For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. And when Gallio was the deputy of Achaia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was now about to open his mouth, Gallio said unto the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or wicked lewdness, O ye Jews, reason would that I should bear with you. But if it be a question of words and names and of your law, look ye to it. For I will be no judge of such matters. And he drave them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. And Gallio cared for none of these things. Acts 18, this first half of the chapter, is an interesting passage because it tells us about Paul's ministry for a year and a half in the city of Corinth. And we know from other accounts in the scripture that ministry in Corinth was difficult. This was a difficult place of ministry. If Athens was known as the seat of learning and philosophy in the ancient world, 
Corinth was known as the seat of licentious behavior. It was, to put it in terms that we would understand, like the Las Vegas of the ancient world. And you understand what I'm saying when I say that because everybody regards Las Vegas as the place where you go to do things that you figure will never be talked about in other places. It's also called Sin City. And Corinth was very much like this. It was a place where people would go to participate in carnality and idolatry. And actually, the the unbridled sexuality in the city was tied closely to the worship of a false goddess that was very popular in the city of Corinth. In that day, when someone wanted to speak about someone being a party person or someone who wanted to live a a wild lifestyle they would refer to them as wanting to be a Corinthian. And it was this place that Paul came to hoping to preach the gospel. It was such a difficult place of ministry that later when Paul was remembering his ministry there, he would say to the church that was eventually established at Corinth in his letter to them that he was with them in weakness and fear and trembling. He was struggling or dealing with, if you will, anxieties or fears as he was preaching the gospel. And you and I might be tempted to question, how could God work in such a place? You would think a city like that, that God would write it off and that it would be too late for them. But indeed, we know from the record of Scripture that God did a work there and that there were people that God wanted to work in their lives, people who were seeking the Lord, who were were ready to hear the gospel, and it was imperative for Paul to go and spend this 18 months there in the city of Corinth ministering with the gospel. Now, Acts 18 shows us something about ministering in a difficult place, and particularly, it shows us the importance of God being with us. And I'd like to take a few minutes this morning and look at these 17 verses and and talk to you about this subject, when God is with you. Because though it was a difficult place to minister, and in fact, we could probably say there's a lot of similarities between our own culture and the city of Corinth, But it was a difficult place, and it seemed like, Lord, why are you bringing me here? Why would you want me to come to this place? God wanted to do a work there, and God was clearly leading the Apostle Paul to this place. When God is with you, how does he work? What does he do when he calls us to minister in a difficult place? The first thing that my attention was drawn to in the first several verses here in Acts 18 is this thought that when God is with you, he gives you relationships in the gospel. There's a very important couple that's brought to our attention in the first three verses of Acts chapter 18. We've heard of them before, and we'll hear of them again. Their names are Aquila and Priscilla. And it's obvious from this passage, this is the first interaction, it seems, that Paul had with this couple, and 
Paul met them here in the city of Corinth and there was a bond that drew them together, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But I want to point out to you that as believers who are preaching the gospel, sometimes in difficult circumstances, some of the dearest relationships that we enjoy are those that we have with others who labor with us in the gospel. There's something about the kinship that is, that is forged, the, the closeness that is forged when we labor together in the gospel, even in difficult places. And these relationships, as is described here in these verses, could be a source of encouragement and strength to us when the way gets hard. In fact, sometimes I think, what would we do without brothers and sisters in Christ who are also laboring for the Lord? Would we continue on? Would would we continue preaching the gospel or would we become discouraged and step aside from the work that God has called us to do? Now, we don't know when Aquila and Priscilla became followers of Jesus. The Bible does not record for us their conversion testimony or tell us when it was that they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's we, we know from the passage here that they had lived in Rome, in Italy. Uh, we know that they were also familiar with the area of Pontius. That's where Aquila was originally from, and that would have been in Asia Minor. We don't know whether, perchance, they came to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and heard about Jesus then, or if they heard about Jesus when they were in the area of Asia Minor, or if somehow word got to them as uh, the believers from Jerusalem were scattered all over the known world preaching the gospel. But it does seem that by the time they came to Corinth, Aquila and Priscilla were all already disciples of Jesus Christ, and they already were committed to serving with the gospel and preaching the gospel to others. Now, some people believe that perhaps it was Paul himself who led Aquila and Priscilla to the Lord, but it doesn't seem to indicate that from the scriptures. Again, we just don't know, but we do know that by the time they come to Corinth and by the time that Paul begins to interact with them, there's a kinship that they share together. Now, you'll notice that this kinship also had something to do with their physical craft. And I'll point out to you briefly, though it's not the point of the message, that while Paul was a preacher of the gospel, and he was a man who was trained in philosophy, in Jewish theology, he also had developed a handcraft. That is, he was able to work with his hands. In particular, he was able to make tents. And of course, for many people, the tent would be their primary dwelling. Many people did not live in houses at that time of history, and a tent would be very important. And so he was able to make tents with his hands, and Aquila and Priscilla were also of this same craft. And it was this craft that first introduced them to one another. Evidently, they found each other, and I'll point out to you that it seems it was It was necessary for Paul during this time in his ministry to be working with his hands and making tents, producing tents for sale so that he could support the financial needs of himself and of his ministry team. Sometimes Paul existed on the special offerings of churches and that was a blessing for him, but sometimes it became necessary for him to take time 
to do things with his hands in order to earn a living so that he could pay his bills. Now, the Bible tells us here in Acts chapter 18 that Aquila and Priscilla came to the city of Corinth under, under circumstances that perhaps were not all that great. Uh, in fact, they had lived before this in the city of Rome, and they were commanded by the Caesar to depart from the city of Rome. Along with other Jewish people who lived in the city, there was some sort of an unsettling among the Hebrews against the Roman government, and the emperor Claudius said, I want all of the Jewish people expelled from the city of Rome. Aquila and Priscilla, though they were probably not a part of this insurrection, were caught up in being expelled from the city. And you could just imagine with me for a moment how difficult that would be for you to have to pick up, to uproot your family and move to a completely different part of the world because of something that someone else had done. But that seems to be the case for Aquila and Priscilla. In fact, I like to think about it that they probably were not all that keen on moving. They probably were disappointed that they had to uproot their life and move to a different place. But even in these difficult circumstances, these circumstances of persecution that were not even because of something that Aquila and Priscilla themselves had done, still God in his sovereignty was able to use this occurrence or this incidence to bring Aquila and Priscilla from Rome to Corinth just in time so that they could meet the Apostle Paul and God could bind their hearts together in relationship. Later, the Apostle Paul would regard this couple with warmness in the book of Romans chapter 16. He would call them his helpers in Christ Jesus. This couple would be instrumental in the work of the ministry, as we'll see at a later point in the book of Acts. This was a couple who was fully committed to serving the Lord. Though they themselves were working what we would regard as a secular job to support their needs, they used their secular job as a platform for the preaching of the gospel, and God blessed them because of this. If I could pause for just a moment and encourage those of you who work in the marketplace in what we might regard as a secular job, use the place where God has put you as a platform for the preaching and proclamation of the gospel. Aquila and Priscilla were not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, and they were later not ashamed of their relationship with the Apostle Paul even after the time that they would go their separate ways, Aquila and Priscilla would continue serving the Lord and would be a source of encouragement to the Apostle Paul. Now think about this. Here they were in the city of Corinth for this time, evidently for the entire year and a half that Paul was there ministering. They were there as well. And I'm reminded that when times are difficult, God gives us relationships in the gospel. Praise the Lord for that. Just for a moment, you could look around the room in this auditorium and think about the relationships that God has given us together. Brothers and sisters who stand together in the faith of the gospel. When times get difficult, we have those who are with us to pray, to encourage, to strengthen, to admonish, to exhort. And this is a tremendous blessing. Just imagine for a moment, if you were the only believer, or your family was the only believers in a city, how, how difficult that would be. 
It makes me wonder how it is that people willingly separate themselves from the assembly and go off on their own when there's a potential for them to be strengthened in their faith by those kinds of relationships. Paul treasured these relationships in the gospel. It wasn't just Aquila and Priscilla, but they certainly were a significant piece of this. And God encouraged his heart in these relationships in the gospel. Maybe this morning, God would have you give thanks for some of the relationships that you enjoy that strengthen your heart to continue on preaching the gospel to those around you. When God is with us, he gives us relationships in the gospel. But when it's tough and God is with us, verses 4 through 7... God also helps us to reason with the gospel. There's a temptation when you're in a difficult place to just shut your mouth. Go incognito, secret Christian mode. I don't, I don't want anybody to know that I'm a follower of Christ. I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to stir up anything. I don't want to bother anybody. I don't want any difficulties. And certainly... If Paul had made that decision in the city of Corinth, we could have said, I could understand that. I might feel the same way. In a city this wicked, what would he hope to accomplish? But what we find is that Paul immediately, though he was in fear and weakness and trembling, Paul immediately went into the synagogue, which I will point out to you was the source of most of his persecution up to this point. But he went immediately to the synagogue And on the Sabbath days, he began to teach and preach in that place using the entry that he had because of his credentials as a Hebrew who had studied under Gamaliel. He went into those places and the Bible tells us in verse number four, he reasoned in the synagogues. That word is very important. We pointed out a similar thought last week in the message, but this word reasoned means that he discussed with them. He argued, he preached. In other words, he had a gospel discussion with them. He began to present to them concepts which perhaps they had not understood or had not yet pondered. The word reasoned has the idea of asking questions to provoke thought and discussing the different aspects of the gospel. And I want to say to you this morning that as a believer, no matter how difficult it is in the place where you are, it's God's will for you to seek to have gospel conversations. Do you understand this morning that gospel conversations are required in order to plant the seed of the gospel? It's disheartening to consider how few Christians have regular gospel conversations with unsaved people in society around them. The truth is that most professing Christians are silent about the gospel. But Paul was not going to be that way. He went into the synagogue and he reasoned with them. Now, I understand this morning many of us have the idea that it's very difficult and challenging and and scary to have gospel conversations, but I want you to understand it doesn't have to be that way. It's actually not that difficult to have gospel conversations. The truth is that if you'll learn to practice having gospel conversations and asking thought-provoking questions, you will be stunned how often people will want to talk about spiritual things. 
The Apostle Paul entered into a place. He began to reason with them concerning the gospel. And then it says that he persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. And the word persuaded means he convinced them by assuring them that something was true. In his conversation, in his discussion with them, he was able to convince and assure that there were some things about Jesus that were worth believing. Now, don't take this to mean that if God is with us, we'll be able to convince every person. Because the Bible is clear that not every person will be convinced or wants to be convinced. There are people who set their minds against God, who resist the conviction of the Holy Spirit, who are determined to go on in their own way. But I do want you to understand that the gospel is surely true and the gospel is persuasive when it is presented. When God is with us and we present the gospel to people, there's something about the gospel because it is true that resonates in the heart of man. This is exactly what was happening. As Paul was preaching, he was seeing undeniably that God was with him because he was reasoning with people and he was persuading them. Isn't it a a consolation to you when you hear about people who are persuaded by the truth of the gospel, who see it, and who then put their faith in Christ and God begins to change their life, isn't that an encouragement to you to know that God still saves? He was reasoning. He was persuading all of this because God was with him. And then it tells us in verse number 5 that Silas and Timotheus finally made their way to him from Macedonia. And when they arrived, Paul was pressed in the spirit. I'm looking at verse 5. Paul was pressed in the spirit and he testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. Now we find in his epistle to the Corinthians that Paul had determined to preach nothing among them except Christ and him crucified. There was a pressing on his spirit. This means that he was compelled He was brought to the place where he couldn't delay in preaching the truth about Jesus being the Messiah, Jesus being the one that had been promised. Now, this was a significant truth to the Hebrews who were gathered to hear him as he reasoned and as he was persuading. And there's a sense here in verse 5 that there's an urgency. There's something different about the way that he's speaking in verse 5 than how he was speaking in verse 3 and 4. And the idea is this, that that he's urgently pleading with them to come to Christ. There's a difference of tone, perhaps a difference in the sense that he's really pressing the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. I want to point out to you that many people are fine with talking about Jesus as long as you don't make it exclusive. As long as you don't say that Jesus is the only way of salvation, as long as he's just one of the ways to salvation, as long as he's just an option for them to consider, many people are fine with that. But when you step over that line and you point out to people that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ, it's at that time that people sometimes get upset by the message. Many people 
don't have a problem with a multiplicity of things to believe. But when you declare that something is absolutely true and exclusively true, that means it rules out other things. It causes people to exhibit resistance. And the reason is because at that moment they realize they can't just go on as they are and interact with this message. There's a decision that is required on their part. It is controversial even today to say that Jesus is the only way of salvation. It's interesting how easily people will get offended if you begin speaking about Jesus as the exclusive way to the Father. If you point out that his sacrifice is the only way of salvation, people will say, wait a second, what are you saying about people who believe other things? They struggle with that. But it's true, the Bible is clear that Jesus is the only way of salvation. And if I could point out to you, we don't actually deserve any way of salvation. The fact that God has provided one way for us to be saved is of His mercy and His grace. It's not up to us to make up some other option that is more pleasing to us. So Paul began, as he was pressed in the Spirit, he began to testify to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. Now, I want to point out to you that this is gospel preaching. Preaching about Jesus is gospel preaching. Talking about your church is fine, but that's just religion talk. We've got to get to the point about Jesus Because Jesus is the one who saves. It's not a church who saves. It's not a a religion that saves. It's Jesus who saves. And so we need to make sure that we keep the focus on Jesus and that we speak about Jesus because he is the way of salvation. And if there's going to be a controversy, let the controversy be over Jesus because he is the only way. And there was a controversy. You saw it as we read through the text that once he started testifying to these Jews in an urgent way that Jesus was Christ, that is, he's the Messiah, he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, verse 6, resistance was encountered. They began, and it's interesting the wording in verse 6, they opposed themselves. I'll come back to that in just a moment. And blasphemed. They began to speak against Jesus Jesus, who is God, and they began to blaspheme his name. Instead of receiving the news about Jesus, they began to make light of him, and they began to mock him, and they began to say, we're not going to believe on Jesus, and they pushed back against the message of the gospel. Now, what is happening when people are doing this? They are opposing themselves. The Bible tells us that when people resist the message of the gospel... When they resist the truth, they are actually their own worst enemy. They are believing the lies that they have formulated in their mind, and they are resisting God, they're resisting the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and they are opposing themselves. Before you were saved, you opposed yourself. In rebellion and wanting to go on in your own way and your own path, You opposed God, and as you opposed God, you opposed yourself. 
That's why 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 25 and 26 says that the servant of the Lord must not strive, but he must have a spirit of meekness. He must gently encourage and exhort so that people who oppose themselves can come to the knowledge of the truth. So that they can come to the place where they recognize the truth for what it is and they repent of the way that they have thought about the truth of God. So resistance was encountered. Unfortunately, in this case, in verse number 6, the majority of the crowd that was resisting did not change their mind. They began to become quite violent. And so Paul did a a visible thing. He he made a, a, if you will, a, a picture for them. He took his outer garment, his raiment, and he shook it. And he said to those people, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. In other words, and I want to point this out to you, there is a sense in which we have responsibility for the souls of other men. There is a sense in which God requires us to speak to them about the truth of the gospel. But once they understand it, It's then their responsibility, what they will do with that truth. It's no longer our responsibility. Our responsibility is to preach the message. Their responsibility is to respond. So Paul said to them, I'm clean. I've said to you, I've shared with you the truth. You've said that you don't want it. From henceforth, I will go unto the Gentiles. This marks a significant change in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. From this point... He will primarily be ministering to the Gentiles who at this point are much more open to the gospel. And I want to encourage you this morning, if someone doesn't want to hear the gospel, just keep on preaching the gospel. Just because one person doesn't want to hear doesn't mean everyone doesn't want to hear. In fact, when one person closes their mind and their heart to the truth of the gospel, it usually means that there's another group or another person that is open to the gospel. So just keep preaching the gospel. Sometimes, you know, we get to the place where we think, well, people just don't want to hear. So, you know, I had one person slam the door in my face, so I, I won't talk to anybody else. And we can get that attitude as Christians. You can go, Sometimes you go on outreach and knock on doors and you get one person that's a little bit upset with you and tells you to get off their property and slams the door and has a few choice words for you. And you can walk away from that wounded thinking, well, this must be representative of the whole neighborhood. No, it might just be one cranky person who's having a grumpy day or somebody who doesn't want to hear the gospel, but maybe their next door neighbor does want to hear the gospel. I don't know, do you and your next door neighbor think differently from each other? Why characterize everyone with a broad brush because of the response of one or the response of a few? Mm -hmm. And even you'll find in a group of people who are being resistant to the gospel, there may be one or two even in that group where God is working in their life and they are open to the truth of the gospel. And that brings us to the third thought this morning about ministering in a difficult place and what God does for us when He's with us. He gives us relationships in the gospel. He helps us to reason with the gospel, but also He reassures us to keep on preaching the gospel. I don't know exactly what happened in the heart of the Apostle Paul, 
But I know this, in verse 9, God came to him in a visible and powerful way to reassure him, which tells me that something was going on in his heart that was causing him perhaps to question his calling, perhaps to question whether he should continue on with what God had asked him to do. And God came to him and reassured him. In at least three ways, God reassured the Apostle Paul in this difficult season of ministry. First of all, he reassured him by giving him some fruit. Remember what I just said about sometimes in a crowd of people where there's people who are upset and there's some resistance to the gospel, you don't know what God is doing in every individual heart. And sometimes in the midst of that, there's somebody who is in that group and it seems like everybody's resisting the gospel, but there's one or two people, maybe more than that, whose hearts are prepared and who are responding, but they don't know how to express that yet. And, and they're, they're uncertain because they're in with their peers and they don't know what to say. Don't underestimate God's ability to work in a situation like that. So Paul distanced himself from the synagogue. He didn't go very far. It says, in fact, he went right next door to the house of justice. Justice was a believer. He was a man who loved Jesus, and he opened his home. The Bible tells us that he, his house was hard up against the synagogue, so right next door. And they began meeting in that place. And here in this place, Paul began proclaiming the gospel. And the Bible tells us in verse number 8 that a man named Crispus who was the chief ruler of the synagogue, was so moved by the proclamation about Jesus that he turned his back on his position and his preeminence in the synagogue and he became a follower of Jesus Christ. Amen. Later when Paul wrote his first epistle to the church at Corinth, he mentioned that he had not baptized any of them except for a couple of people and one of them was this man Crispus. Crispus was one of the first fruits of the ministry in the city of Corinth. He was a man of influence. He was a man whom God would use to draw others to the knowledge of Christ. But remember this, that even in times when people are resisting the gospel, God is still working. Some people believed on Christ and they were baptized, according to verse number eight, and an infant church was formed in a, the most unlikely place, in Sin City of the ancient world, a church was birthed that would become a lighthouse of the gospel. So God reassured him by giving him some fruit. Second of all, God reassured him by dealing with his fear. I alluded to this already in verse number 9. The Lord came to Paul and he spoke to him in a vision at night. And he said this, Be not afraid, but speak. And hold not thy peace, for I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to harm thee or to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. Now, you'll notice that the Lord came to Paul and he spoke to him very plainly and very personally, and he told Paul, I want you to keep on preaching. Don't give up. That tells me that Paul was thinking about giving up, that Paul was thinking about being silent. You know, that makes me feel a little better. Because there's some times when I think, I, I just want to stop. I, I, don't, I don't know that I want to do this anymore. I don't, I don't want to keep 
sharing the gospel if people aren't going to receive it. I, I, don't, I don't like going to places and having people say, no, I'm not interested. I don't care. Get away from me. Leave me alone, you Bible thumpers, you Jesus freaks. Get, get away from me, you holy roller. You know, those sorts of things that people sometimes say. They don't say it often, but enough that you maybe start to develop a little bit of a complex. Maybe I'll just be quiet. Maybe I'll just stop sharing the gospel. And Paul got to the place where he was toying with this idea. And so the Lord came to him and he said, Paul, I want you to keep preaching. Don't give up. And then he gave him some things to think about. He said in verse 10, I am with thee. What a consoling thought as a believer to know that when you go with the gospel, the Lord is going with you. God assured Paul, Paul, you're not alone. Now, certainly he had some co-laborers and and the fellowship that he enjoyed with other believers who were there with him, with these who had recently gotten saved. But there is nothing that will ever take the place of God being with you. And it's a tremendous consolation to know that the Lord is with you in the midst of what he has called you to do. So he assured him, I'm with thee. And then in verse 10, he assured him, you're going to be safe. Don't be afraid, Paul. Now, there would come a time when Paul would give his life in order to preach the gospel. That time was not now. God was saying to Paul, it's not time yet. You still have much work to do. No man shall set on thee to hurt thee. What did God say? Paul, I've marked you off. Nobody's going to be able to do harm to you, Paul, so you just keep on preaching. Don't you worry about how they look at you. Don't you worry about what they say to you. Don't you worry about how they threaten you. No man will do you harm. Do you know we have the same promise from God? That if we're in the will of God, no one will do us harm until God says, okay, now it's your time. And we don't know when that time will come, so we might as well be faithful. By the way, not being faithful won't keep you from that time anyway. So you might as well just be faithful in the work of the Lord. God assured Paul he'd be with him. He assured him that he'd be safe. And then he assured him of something else, which must have been quite hard for Paul to believe. He said, I have much people in this city. In Sin City? You have much people in this city? Now, this could refer to two things. It could refer to those who were already followers of Jesus who were in the city of Corinth that Paul didn't know about. And certainly that could have been a possibility. People like Aquila and Priscilla, people who had come to the city of Corinth but didn't know that Paul was there or didn't know who he was. Paul didn't know who they were. So it could have been people who were already followers of Jesus who were around. And isn't it a wonderful thing to know that there are people all around us in the world who are also followers of Jesus? Sometimes God brings us across their path to encourage us and to assure us that he is with us, that he's working. God gives us, I think, these handfuls sometimes to encourage us. We don't always know, but he shows us at times what he's up to. Or it could also refer to those who were in the city that God knew 
were going to become his people as they responded to the gospel of Christ. Those that he already knew about that were there who had seeking hearts, who when they heard about Jesus were going to become followers of Jesus and they were going to be baptized and they were going to become a part of this church and God was going to work through Paul to do that work. And so God said, Paul, don't give up. There's still people who need to hear. Either way, it's a consolation, isn't it? Sometimes we, we survey a situation, we look at a, at a city or a neighborhood or an area and we think there's just no way that God could work in that place. Don't be so quick to judge. Don't be so quick to ascertain whether or not God can work in a place like that. Chances are he's already working and you just have no idea what he's up to. When one person resists, you and I tend to quiet down thinking that many other people will be resistant to the truth. But this is rarely the case. Usually, I like to think of it this way. Usually when the devil puts up a fuss and somebody is really vocally resistant to the gospel, it's because God is doing something. And it's meant to be a distraction to cause us to go off to the side, to, to no longer persist in the preaching of the gospel because the God of this world, the enemy of men's souls, is trying to blind men's eyes to the gospel. And if he can get us to be quiet, then those people might not hear the gospel. So pay attention when this happens. Usually when one person is vocally resistant, there are others who are thinking and open to the gospel truth. Maybe not bold enough yet to let you know what's going on in their heart. But God wanted to reassure the Apostle Paul, so he dealt with his fear. But the third thing he did to reassure him was he showed him how he was fortifying or protecting his life. And there's an illustration of it. We read it in verses 12 through 17. I won't reread the text to you, but you see what happened after Paul was there for a period of time. Verse 11 tells us he was there for a year and six months. So 18 months, he was preaching the gospel. The word of God was published in the city of Corinth. God was doing a great work there. And the, those who were attached to the synagogue who were resistant to the message got really stirred up. And in verse 12... They got so upset that they began uh, an insurrection. And they got a mob together and they grabbed a hold of the Apostle Paul and they dragged him down to the judgment seat where a fellow named Gallio was presiding. And he would have been a, a, a governor for the Roman government. So he was a Roman and he was presiding over this area and they brought him before Gallio and they made accusations against against the Apostle Paul, and they began to say all these things about Paul, how he was causing an insurrection and all kinds of problems. And I love what it says there in verse number 14, and when Paul was now about to open his mouth. So he was about to make a defense of why he should be allowed to do the things that he should do, but he never even got a chance to open his mouth. Because Gallio looked at the Jews who were accusing Paul, and basically he told them, stop bringing your charges, your false charges against this guy. There's nothing to this. 
If this was a matter of breaking the law, I would deal with it, but it clearly has something to do with your interpretation of the Old Testament law, and I'm going to have nothing to do with any of this. And he thrust them out from his judgment room. Paul was set free. You see what happened? God protected Paul. Paul didn't have to even speak for himself. God protected him. Now, I don't presume to think that Gallio was a follower of Jesus Christ or that he believed the gospel himself. I just believe that just like God does, he worked in Gallio's life in such a way that his heart was moved with compassion towards Paul and he set him free. And then the Greeks who were in that area were so upset with the Jews who did this that they went to the synagogue And they got the new ruler of the synagogue, whose name was Sosthenes, and they dragged him back to the judgment room and they beat him right there in front of Gallio to say publicly, you guys stop this. Stop behaving in this way. Now, an interesting thing, there is someone named Sosthenes who is mentioned in one of the epistles to the church at Corinth as being with the Apostle Paul and greeting the church that was at Corinth. And I don't know if it's the same person, but I like to think that after Sosthenes got beaten, the Apostle Paul got up alongside him and began to share with him the truth about Jesus Christ. And Sosthenes, just like Crispus before him, became a follower of Jesus And his life was changed. What I'm saying to you is that God reassured the Apostle Paul by taking care of him. If you're in the middle of God's will, you don't have to worry about taking care of yourself. God is going to take care of you. Now, don't be foolish. Don't go off and do something that's not God's will. Don't put yourself in a dangerous place and say, well, God's going to protect me. I mean, you better make sure you're walking in God's will. But if you're in God's will, there is no safer place for you, no matter where you are. You can have confidence that God is going to take care of you. And the truth of the matter is that even though you may be ministering in a difficult place, when God is with you, He's going to take care of you. And this is a consolation. Now, how about you? Some of you say, ministering to my family is a difficult place. Ministering in my community is a difficult place. Ministering at my job is a difficult place. I've got to be so careful what I say. You know, if I say the wrong thing, I could lose my job. Somebody might accuse me of of doing something that would cause my job to be compromised. Uh, You know, ministering to uh, in, in this other place, it's a difficult place. If God is calling you to minister in that place, He's going to take care of it. And he's calling you to minister there because there is, there is a harvest that is waiting. So be faithful to go with the gospel when you know that God is with you. Now I want you to be challenged with this thought this morning because I fear that for many of us, we've long ago stepped back from sharing the gospel actively with other people around us. For whatever reason, maybe we've become afraid or we've gotten burned a couple of times or it's gotten difficult and or maybe we're just self-conscious and we're not sure what this. I don't know what the situation is, but I know this. If you're engaged in the battle for men's souls, it is difficult 
It's a battlefield, brother. Not a recreation room. It's a fight and not a game. So the truth is this morning, why are we expecting things to be easy when God told us it would be difficult? It would be spiritual warfare. If you find yourself in a difficult place, take heart. Because the Apostle Paul was in a difficult place and he was right where God wanted him because God was working in that very moment. God was doing an eternal work in the hearts of men. This morning, I hope that you'll allow these thoughts to encourage you. I hope that you will go forth with boldness in this holiday season to share the gospel with those around you. I hope that you'll ask the Lord to help you be the kind of witness that you ought to be 